You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, after explaining that when it comes down to it, we all agree that God is sovereign in salvation, uh, whether we, we profess that or not. Uh, he makes the argument we agree, and, and, and the first thing of why he says it's because we all give thanks to God for our salvation. That we, we do not divide uh, the credit between ourselves and him. We give him all the credit and all the gratitude and thanks because of that salvation. And, and then he goes on with this second part of his argument. And he says, there is a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. And in what terms now do you intercede for others, for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them, that he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hearts, renew their nature, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayers that you are not asking God actually to bring them to faith because you recognize that that is something he cannot do. You know that what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. And the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. There is a long-standing controversy in the church as to whether God is really Lord in relation to human conduct and saving faith or not. The situation is not what it seems to be. For it is not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty while others hold an opposite view. What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. How then do you pray? Do you ask God for your daily bread? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, I can only say that I do not think you are yet born again. But if the answer is yes, well, that proves that whatever side you may have taken in debates on this question in the past, in your heart you believe in the sovereignty of God no less firmly than anyone else. On our feet we may have arguments about it, but on our knees we are all agreed. Now, as we look at this, and again, we say yes, God is sovereign, and that that is why we look to him and and ask him to save those uh, around us. Why why bring this up now? Well, uh, because in the passage we're looking at, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy how he is to perform his marching orders, 
that Paul had given to him when he left Timothy there in Ephesus. And the first thing we see that Paul tells Timothy to address after going on the fact that there's been false doctrine uh, perpetuated in the church, uh, the first thing, a practical thing, the first um, practice that he's to address is congregational praying. And the prayers he specifically calls for is prayers for salvation, is evangelistic prayers. And so it does raise the question, why should we pray to God for the salvation of others? Well, it's because God is sovereign in the salvation of all who come to him. God is the one who brings them to himself. God is the one who saves. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end. And that is recognized in the fact that we pray to him for the salvation of others. And so that's what we, we look at here this morning. Evangelistic prayers. As we gather together as the church, we are to be praying all kinds of prayers, as we'll see, but, but specifically for the salvation of the lost. Now, last week, uh, we saw Paul discuss how he gave thanks to Christ, who gave him strength, counting him faithful, calling, in, calling Paul into his service. And he did this even though Paul had formerly been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet, Paul had received mercy. And Paul's testimony is that Christ saved him, Christ changed him, the, him the worst of sinners. And Christ did this so that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And having been saved through this gospel, this gospel of mercy and grace, Paul then too was entrusted with the gospel to proclaim the gospel, which Paul did all over the Roman Empire as he planted and edified churches. And so as we discussed going through 1 Timothy here, on his fourth missionary journey, after having been released from prison, him and Timothy began to address the issues that were there in the church of Ephesus. Uh, they went there, and, and as they were there, they saw that there was false teaching that had been spread about. And then when Paul had to move on to Macedonia, he left Timothy there in Ephesus to finish the job that they had started, to command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And this charge was in line with Timothy's calling to ministry. And so that he would fight the good fight, take up the good warfare, Holding faith, holding faith and a good conscience as he proclaims and defends the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now we pick up the text this morning, uh, beginning a new section. Uh, here Paul begins to address the, the practices and the conduct of the church. He has addressed the issue of false teachers and false teaching. And so now it's no surprise really that because of false teaching being spread, that then too the, the conduct of the church and the practice of the church is then perverted as well. Again, we discussed right at the beginning of this uh, series that what we believe is going to affect what we do. And if we profess one thing, but our actions as a church and as individuals are in contradiction to what we profess to believe, 
If our conduct and practice is in contradiction to the doctrine we profess, then there's something wrong with our profession. And so Paul begins to address such things. And we see here that he begins with addressing congregational prayer. And starting here is the natural overflow of what Paul has been discussing. Matter of fact, we see there in verse 1 of chapter 2 that Paul says, First of all, then, or could be translated, first of all, therefore, And this shows us that Paul is drawing a logical conclusion based on what he has just said, specifically what he said there in chapter 1, verse 18. And so let's let's look at the text here together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions— that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, what we see here is as Paul, sorry, I gotta move my pen here. What we see here is Paul, in chapter 1, verse 18, reminds Timothy of the charge that he entrusted to him. Uh, This charge to deal with the false teachers there in the church. And so he is to command that they stop teaching any different doctrine. Uh, But then clearly to exercise this charge, he must also bring correction that that doctrine brought about false practices, wrong practices within the church. So he's got to bring that correction to those practices. And so it's not surprising that since clearly the gospel was at the heart of the problem, that then evangelistic prayer in the church is something that Timothy needed to address first and foremost. And so again, this is the time when the congregation has gathered together. Uh, This is the public worship of the church together. And so there was a right way for them to gather and and things that they were supposed to do when they gathered together. And we've talked about this too. How, How should our worship look as well? Uh, What should the elements of our worship be? I mean, that's what Paul is addressing here. Are we to worship any way we like? That as long as God has not forbidden it, then we can do it. Or has God prescribed how he is to be approached? Well, again, we've discussed. God has prescribed how he's to be approached, how he's to be worshipped. And again, we, we see that in the elements that are addressed in these things. And we'll get more into that as we go along as well. So again, what we see here is Paul urging that there be corporate prayers. And he lists four kinds of prayers that there was to be. First, there's to be prayers of supplication, which is the idea of pleading for needs. When someone recognizes that something is lacking. Next, we see that 
out of these four words, possibly this second word is the most general term for prayer. Uh, matter of fact, every translation that I looked at uh, translated as just prayer. And then the third word is translated uh, in most translations as intercession. Uh, this refers to prayers and petitions made on behalf of others. And it conveys an urgency and a boldness in our prayers. In such prayers, we identify with the needs of others and we are sympathetic towards their struggles. And so we take those things before God with the same urgency and the same pleas as if the struggle was our own. We're sympathetic towards the needs and struggles of others. And in context, this would include then the need for salvation that others have, that the lost has. And we can enter into that struggle, right? That we've recognized through the grace of God our need for salvation. We know that we need a Savior, and Christ so graciously saved us, and so we should then pray for the need of salvation that others have, that they would recognize their need and repent and believe. We can sympathize with that need. And so we should be praying for the loss as someone had been praying for us, as God so graciously saved us. Now, what I've already discussed here is the, what, what I have discussed here is the nuances between these words. Uh, but even though there's these nuances in these words, there's also a sense, as many point out, that these words are actually uh, synonymous with one another. And so it's possible that Paul's point here isn't the nuances between the words, but just the fact that God calls his people to come to him with all kinds of prayers. But too, we should consider that in a list like this, the nuances may be important as well. And so the things that we are specifically to do in our times of, of prayer. And so then we see the last word Paul uses here is the word thanksgiving. Which obviously then, this word refers to the expression of gratitude. Now, in all of these things, it's important to have these elements in our corporate prayer, obviously, but also to in our individual prayer life as well. Matter of fact, three of these four words we see the Apostle Paul uses elsewhere in his letters. And so it's clear that, that these types of prayers should make up our prayer life. We should be applying these things as we pray. And if we don't find these elements, these types of prayers in our prayer life, it, it does beg the question, why? If there's not a variety of prayers in our prayer life, why? Why is that the case? If there's no supplication, do we really recognize that there are needs? Needs of ourselves and, and needs of others. Needs that are dependent upon God to fulfill. Do we fail to see that? If we don't pray to God at all, do we fail to recognize how truly dependent we are on God? Do we tr fail to recognize God's sovereignty, his control over life, that he is the one who is able to have an effect in our circumstances and, and in our requests and, again, in, in the need that there is for salvation? If we are not interceding for others, do we care about others? Are we concerned about the needs of others? 
if we do not lift others up in prayer? Are we not concerned about their need for salvation? Do we not recognize how urgent the need of salvation is? Uh, No one knows when they're going to breathe their last breath. Uh, We must recognize that the gospel going out and and someone uh, believing in the gospel, it, it is an urgent thing. So we must be praying that people would repent and believe, looking to God to bring that about. And if we do not pray with thanksgiving, are we really grateful? Do we fail to recognize what mercies have been shown to us, what what overflowing grace that we have known because of our Lord? Do we not recognize that everything we have comes from God? If we're not so grateful for the gifts that God has given us, much less, I mean, can we not at least be grateful for the gift of salvation? Have we not come to realize and and recognize the depths of our need? That God didn't just save someone who made mistakes. No, God had to save a wretched sinner. It wasn't just a little bit of grace to save me. It was an abundance, an overflow of infinite grace to save me. And each and every one of us. We have violated the the holy law of God. We have been an offense against God's infinite holiness. We fail to see the depths of the salvation and and, and fail to be overwhelmed by it. Fail to see what price Christ has truly paid for us in the cross. Or do we still think that, you know, even though I'm not perfect, I'm still a good person? And do we pat ourselves on the back that, that we've made ourselves holy? Look, look how good I'm doing in, in these areas. And, and, and you know, I, I keep the commandment. Sure, I, I do pretty good. Look at me. I mean, I say that, but, but is that the attitude that we have? That we're trying to establish our own righteousness? And, and listen, if that's the case, then maybe we have yet to be saved at all. Maybe that's why we're not truly grateful for our salvation, because we're not truly saved. Maybe we've never trusted in Jesus Christ to begin with. Paul here calls for all these different kinds of of prayers to be made. And when he says that they're to be made, uh, that verb to be made, that that is a, a present infinite verb demonstrating that these prayers are to be continually made. This isn't just a one-time thing. This is to be the the regular practice of the church when we gather together. And so the church is to be continually praying all these types of prayers and praying them for, as it says here, all people. Actually, it says in the Greek, huper panton anthropon, on behalf of all mankind. Now, what does it mean, all mankind? Uh, Is this referring to uh, universally all mankind without exception? Or referring to all kinds of men, all kinds of people without distinction? Well, the very next thing that Paul says in verse 2 is that we are to be praying who pair on behalf of kings and all who are in high positions. In the New International Greek Testament Commentary, Uh, George Knight talks about uh, how the Greek here, we see that the word huper 
which means on behalf of, it is repeated on behalf of mankind, on behalf of kings and all who are in high positions. And the repetition of who pair, and then to specifying a, a specific subgroup, which in this case is civil authorities, he says points to all mankind or all people being in reference to all kinds of people. All of mankind without distinction. So every category of person out there. And he says this makes all the more sense when we see how this phrase is used at other times in 1 Timothy and Titus. This is also how the phrase is used to explain the scope of the ministry of Paul. So we see in Acts chapter 22, verse 15. Knight explains it is also the most plain reading when Paul says all mankind in other passages where an absolute universalism is virtually impossible. And we'll give an example of that in a moment. Knight explains that Paul says all mankind in reference to different categories of people in Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11. That's when he talks about that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, Scythian or barbarian. Uh, There are these categories of people. And why am I going through this so thoroughly? Because, one, looking at what does the text say, and also right here, how we read this is going to affect how we continue here in the context and understand following verses. And so an example of where a universal uh, understanding, a universal absolute is, is virtually impossible in what Paul says, uh, we see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. When Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, Literally, it says, let your gentleness be known to all mankind. And so, can this literally mean all mankind without exception? Was each person in the church there in Philippi, uh, were they expected just to to use their lives, just traveling all around the world to make sure that they they found every single person without exception, all mankind, uh, that all mankind would see their gentleness? Is that the expectation of that verse? Well, clearly not. That's not a reasonable understanding of what Paul says there. Also, if the word all always means all without exception, if it's always a universal all, then that means that there are verses of the Bible that teach universalism, that teach that all men without exception are saved. And that cannot be the case, because the Bible doesn't teach that. Even those verses in their context don't teach that. And yet, we know, again, there is a real hell, and that hell is eternal. Not all will be saved. But Romans chapter 5, verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men but not all men will be justified. Otherwise, all men would be saved. Not all men have life that comes through Jesus' act of righteousness. We know that to be true. Romans teaches that that's the case, that not all will be saved. Romans teaches on the wrath of God. So the justification in life for all men cannot mean all men universally. 
We have to understand that there are times in the context that the word all is limited. And so as we're here in 1 Timothy, uh, again, looking at what does, what does this say, being faithful to this text, understanding what Timothy is saying, or what Paul is saying to Timothy, we see that the point is that there, there is no kind of person, uh, no class of people that we should not be praying for. We should be praying for all mankind without distinction. Uh, that's Paul's point here in 1 Timothy. So specifically, again here, praying for all kinds of people. Paul then says specifically, we're to pray on behalf of kings and all who are in high positions. So again, the governing or the civil authorities that are over us. We are to be praying for our government leaders. And for us, as we are in a society where God's moral standard is pretty much paralyzed, though yes, Roe versus Wade was overturned, and we rejoice in that, but it was kicked back to the states, and so we still have babies continuing to be murdered in the womb. We want to see the sanctity of marriage not continue to be defiled. And we also see in our society the attempts to indoctrinate our children with humanistic, worldly insanity at every turn. And this is promoted by our government leaders. We need to be praying, praying for sure. We need to recognize the need that our politicians have. Pray that they would recognize their need for a Savior and repent. We need to pray that, that God would bring this about, because only God can bring about a change. Only God can bring about salvation in a person's life. And we must care for people around us, and we must care for our politicians whose souls are lost. And so intercede for them in prayer. And we do so, so thankful for the opportunities that God has given us. Thankful God hears our prayers and answers our prayers according to his will. We must give him thanks. Give him thanks that, that he saved us. And so therefore be all the more motivated to pray for the salvation of others. No less the salvation of our political leaders. You know, a few years ago, uh, when Donald Trump was still president, uh, he showed up at David Platt's church. Now, this is, is not an endorsement of really anybody, but of David Platt. Um, but when he was there at David Platt's church, David Platt led his church in praying for Donald Trump. And uh, as far as I can remember, there, there was nothing wrong that he said in his prayer, nothing unbiblical. It was, it was a, a good, solid prayer. And yet he took a lot of heat for it. And if I could be frank, that he would take heat for doing that is just dumb. I really think it shows the biblical illiteracy that American evangelicalism has. We need to be praying for our leaders. We today, we should be, we must be praying for President Biden. We should be praying for his cabinet, for the Senate and the House, for the Supreme Court. 
We should be praying for Governor Wolf. We should be praying for the upcoming election and the candidates of those elections, no less the, the governor candidates. But for the seats that are open and the positions that we'll be voting for on the state level, on the nation le- nation's level, the, the local level, we need to be praying for every branch of government on every level. Praying for our local leaders. We should be praying for Mayfield's mayor, Alexander Chelik. We should be praying for those on the borough council. We should be praying for our chief of police, Joseph Perchinski. And each of us should be praying for the authorities of where we live. And think about this. This is Paul saying we should be praying for kings and those who are in high positions. Paul, who was not always treated well by those in high positions. Right? For example, we see in Acts chapter 24, when Paul's in prison, Governor Felix kept summoning Paul because he was hoping to get a bribe from Paul. And then in the end, he ends up leaving Paul in prison, not because Paul deserved to be in prison, because he clearly didn't, but just because it would make the Jews happy. And so we see the injustice that was given towards Paul by Felix. There's other examples, too, we could go over. And yet, nonetheless, Paul is saying we, we must be praying for our government leaders, for our civil leaders. Paul is calling for supplication, prayers, intercessory, and thanksgiving to be made on their behalf. Like we'd pray for all kinds of people. You know, some not liking policies, not liking personalities, uh, not liking the consequences of one's administration can cause someone to become bitter. But we're not to be bitter. We're to be praying. It's a big difference. Praying for their good, praying God would work in their lives, would open up their eyes to the truth. If we want better leaders, we need to be praying for the ones we already have recognizing that we have them as leaders by God's providential design. And only God, again, can bring about the change of heart. We read in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord is sovereignly ruling and bringing about his purposes through our governing authorities. So we pray to God on behalf of our leaders. And we pray uh, that they would lead well. We pray that they would lead in the fear of the Lord. And again, for us as a nation, we we pray that abortion would be fully, completely abolished. We we pray for that. We pray for the sanctity of marriage to be upheld. We we pray that, that truth would be the standard and that justice would be as God has defined it through his law and his word. And in context, as we pray intercessory prayers for our leaders, we are to be praying evangelistically. We are to be praying for their salvation. And we see this right in the text. I don't want to jump ahead of myself, uh, not too far ahead. But verse 4, we see God desires all people, and again, in context, all kinds of people, which include kings and all who are in positions of authority. We are to be praying that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
So again, our prayers for our government leaders and for all people are to be evangelistic prayers. Again, praying for the salvation of all people, praying for our government leaders. As our leaders are individual people, we should care for their eternal soul. But specifically to the point that Paul is making, we should desire our leaders to trust in the Lord and so lead in the fear of the Lord. As we recognize that we see in in Romans 13 that the government is there and is in the position they're in as a servant of God. So they are to lead in submission to King Jesus. We want our leaders to be those kind of leaders who recognize that they are going to give an account before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you can say, yeah, but they don't recognize Jesus as well. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't see him as over them. Well, that, that doesn't make a difference. That doesn't mean he's not. We've talked about that before. You don't make Jesus your Lord. Uh, Jesus isn't only your Lord if you recognize him or such. None of that makes a difference. Whether you deny him as Lord or see him as your Lord, he's still your Lord either way. And it's the same thing with the governing authorities. They're still going to give an account before Jesus one day. And they'll give an account for how they led. And so we want leaders who see that and recognize that and submit to that. And we should call them to it as well. And if you're not following me, just again, look at the text here. The reason Paul specifically gives for why we should be praying for governing authorities and no less be praying evangelistically for them There at the end of verse 2, it says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That we can live lives that allow us to practice our faith, to be godly, and the word godly there, it's the same word we saw in 2 Peter, the word that refers to reverence, refers to the fear of the Lord, it refers to proper worship, to living to please God. And that we would live dignified, morally upright in every way. That we pray for our leaders so that we may, again, lead this quiet and peaceful life. That, that we may, as we live to please him, not have the, an external resistance or an internal resistance that would hinder us or, or, or tempt us to not live to please him. Now, Does this mean then we are guaranteed to have a peaceful and quiet life as we live for him? Well, no. Uh, We know there'll there'll be persecution at times. Matter of fact, we'll we'll read eventually, Paul said to Timothy, that anyone who wants to lead a a righteous life will be persecuted. But we are praying that we have the freedoms, we have the abilities as far as possible to not have to resist the authorities as we obey King Jesus, and that we can have that peace. And as the gospel goes out, and as people are saved, and as the more people are saved, the more impact the gospel then has on a society. Uh, Richard Caldwell points this out. Uh, he talks about how our, our nation, although now it's it's rapidly getting away from this, but our nation, at its founding, and for many years, 
was influenced by Christianity. It was influenced by Christianity under its understanding of authority and justice and laws and liberty. All of that influenced by the Bible. And so the more there is an influence, the more we are free to exercise our faith, to share the gospel, to gather together, to pray together, to do what is pleasing to the Lord as we lead peaceful and quiet lives. And so we pray for our government leaders, that they will trust in Christ, that they will exercise authority according to his standard, that they will not hinder our gathering together, that they would not make it difficult for us to pray together, and to pray for the lost. Which praying for the lost, verse 3 says, is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is pleasing to our God. Our God who is Savior. God is Savior. God, God is the only one who can save. Again, we're praying to him because he's sovereign over salvation. He, he said through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. It's pleasing in God our Savior's sight to pray for all mankind. In the sight of him who desires all mankind, everyone without distinction, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the knowledge of the truth that brings about salvation. Whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, peasant or king, when all is said and done, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all of God's elect, all whom he has saved, will gather around his throne and sing his praises, give him honor and glory for the great salvation he has provided. And that pleases God. And so the reason Paul gives to why we are to be praying for all mankind, praying evangelistically, is there in verse 5. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God. Unlike the religious pluralistic society we live in, that wants to say all religions and belief systems can coexist, and we are to hold them all in equality with one another, the truth of the matter is they are not all equal with one another. For every religion and every deity but the worship of Yahweh, but the God who has revealed himself in the Old and New Testament, every other system of religion is wrong. That's just the truth of the matter. Our world does not like to hear that. That is bigoted. That is hateful. That is all the things that they may want to call us. But we stand here and say, no, my friends, it's just the truth. It's the truth. And all of those systems of salvation actually cannot save. For though many want to boast, there are many ways to heaven, many ways to God. There is truly only one mediator. And you must come to God through faith in that one mediator. Not through a priest, not through a saint, not through one's own religiosity, but through this one mediator. Though all kinds of people will be saved, they all are only saved through the mediator. 
through faith in him, this mediator who is the man, Jesus Christ. So the mediator between God and man, again, is the man, Jesus Christ. Now then, as Jesus is said to be the only mediator, the way he is the mediator, we see, is that he is the one who has, in verse 6, given himself as a ransom for all. And we see that this idea of mediation here comes from the Old Testament high priest. He was a mediator. He stood in the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the, bu- the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, was a sacrifice that was made for all the people which he was mediating for. And so Christ, he is the high priest, he is the mediator between God and all he has given himself as a ransom for, as a payment for. For all mankind without distinction, for all those he mediates on behalf of. And the idea that he gave himself a ransom for all is the idea of his vicarious substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that his sacrifice was in the place of all who would believe on him. It was the payment for all who would believe on him. It was a satisfaction of wrath for all who would believe on him. He is the mediator in that way. And since he is the one mediator who makes atonement for all who believe on him, let us pray for all peoples, including our government leaders. Let us pray for their salvation, that, they may continue, that we may continue to gather, and gather doing as God would have us do, as God desires for his church, which includes praying for the lost. But we should also note and make a side note here that not only does God call us to pray for the lost, he calls us to go to the lost as well. He calls us to proclaim the gospel. As we pray, Lord, send someone to my family. Lord, send someone to my neighbor. Send someone to my friends. Send someone to my co-workers. That they would hear the gospel and believe. Lord, send someone. As we pray this, he is also sending us. There is only one God. And there's only one mediator. And we need to go make that mediator known. Tell people that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Now, even in saying this, some will say, well, if there is only one God, it's impossible to really know anything about that God. We hear that all the time. But the truth of the fact is, God has made himself known through his Son, through this mediator in his word. But again, to know this God, to know his grace, kindness, and mercy, to escape the wrath, to walk in a relationship with him, we must come to this God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, who is a sufficient Savior for all who believes. He saves to the uttermost. He is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. And this ransom we see here is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ came into the world. Christ laid down his life as a ransom for all just at the right time. Just at the time that God had determined by his sovereign will and his providence. And the fact that he is the testimony at the right time This testimony is a testimony of God's desire to save. 
because God desires to save the lost. He desires that people would repent and look to Christ. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We, we see that in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. But that they would repent and be saved. He delights in saving people. And yet there are those who will not be saved. Because God, for his own glory, has determined to put the full gamut of his character on display. That we would see fully who this God is, and we would worship this God for who he is. That he is a God of wrath and justice. And we see that in the punishment and and eternal damnation of sinners who will not trust in Christ. But he also, too, is a God of grace and mercy, and that grace and mercy is extended to all who will put their faith in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone. And we see there in verse 7 that for this testimony, Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And we see he insists on this, that it's true, and that he's not lying, that he has been appointed a preacher and apostle. And that could be the case because those in the Ephesian church, um, likely the false teachers, they could have been bringing into question the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. Uh, remember when we were in First and Second Corinthians, and we talked about how the false teachers brought accusations against the apostle Paul, uh, because if they could bring into question and discredit the one who brought the Corinthians the gospel message, then they could discredit the gospel. And the very th- same thing may be happening here, or may have happened there in Ephesus. Uh, but for this testimony of God's desire to save, Paul is called to proclaim that salvation message. And of this testimony that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, and that he has called the Apostle Paul to teach this message to the Gentiles in faith and truth, that Paul would take this message out to all peoples. Again, the word there for Gentiles the word ethnos. It's, it's where we get our English word ethnicity or ethnic. That Paul was to proclaim the message not just to the Jews, but to all ethnos, to all peoples, to the nation, to every kind of person, whether Jew or Gentile. Because it's God's desire to save Jews and Gentiles alike. And so since we know it's God's desire to save, what else can we do but to pray that he will do just that, that he will save? Just as he has so graciously saved us. Do we not care enough for people that that we would not pray for their salvation? If we don't care enough to pray for them, are we going to actually care enough to go out and talk to them and share the gospel with them at whatever risk that that might mean? We've been commanded to proclaim this gospel, to make disciples. Uh, But how can we go in obedience if we are not first and foremost seeking the one who can save? Are we going to go and and be dependent upon ourselves and self-reliant as if we're the ones who actually save anybody? No, heaven forbid. We would take some of the credit then. If it's about just us being able to convince someone else and, and, and say the right things and, and be able to show them that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, if it was all dependent upon us, we would take credit for it. But it's not dependent upon us. We can do nothing to save. Only God saves. He gets all the credit and all the glory, and he's not going to share the glory with you or I. He's the only one worthy 
of that glory. He says in Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. No, we have to be coming to him and praying to him and depending upon him for the salvation of those around us as we take out the gospel in obedience. And when we pray for the salvation of others, we have to pray believing, pray with faith that God will save. Right? If we know that God desires to save people, why do we doubt that he will save? Maybe that's why we don't pray for the lost, because we don't actually believe that we're going to see the lost saved. Maybe that's why we don't go share the gospel with others. Maybe that's why we're not motivated, because we don't actually believe that God's going to save. We need to pray with faith and walk out in faith, proclaiming the gospel with confidence that God will save. Even if I don't see that person saved, maybe in God's design, I'm just one of many to, to lead this person along as God is drawing that person to himself. And that in God's timing, he will use all of these things to convict their heart and bring them to himself. I don't, I, it's God's prerogative to do it as he desires. We're just his instruments. He's the one who saves. But we go out believing that he will save that he desires to save, that he's the only one who can save. And so we look to him and we pray to him for the salvation of the lost around us as we go out ourselves as his instruments to proclaim the truth. And that is what we must do. And so my friends, as we are gathered here, as we gather regularly, let us be praying all kinds of prayers, praying for all people around us, praying for the lost, that they would repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.